Yo, what's up? Dr. Swole here, MD bodybuilder, back with another episode on Swole Radio. Today I'm joined by Brad Schoenfeld, who is an absolute household word in the world of hypertrophy. So it's really nice to have him on. Thanks for joining us, Brad. It's my pleasure, man. Today, we're going to be talking all about periodization for hypertrophy. This seems to be a hot topic amongst my audience, and I know we've talked a lot about periodization, but we're going to talk some more about it. So just to set the stage, this is going to be a discussion mainly focused on hypertrophy, so the development of muscle growth, and more so aimed at the advanced lifter. So that being said, we're just going to jump right into it. So Brad, just as a very introductory uh, note, what sort of time frames do you like to use or units of time do you like to organize your training in for a bodybuilder? And say for the this discussion that we're talking about, someone who isn't necessarily competing, but uh, just wants to build muscle and size uh, over time. Yeah, so I, I always hate to have predefined um, anything, pretty much. You know, when we talk about uh, really, they're just kind of guidelines, and ultimately it comes down to the individual. Um, and then it depends. So I want to start out by saying that periodization is kind of a buzzword. Um, if you look at the classic, uh, uh, classic model, the Soviet model of um, of periodization, it has a very def defined uh, structure with your mesocycle and your um, your macrocycle, your mesocycle, your microcycles. Uh, what it's kind of morphed into is is more of an overall word for planning. And there's just so many ways uh, of. I mean, you certainly would almost never see the traditional Soviet period. I've, I certainly wouldn't recommend it a model utilized for hypertrophy training. I mean, that was the Soviet model was for Olympic, uh, basically was for the Olympics, mm -hmm. uh, for their strength and power uh, athletes in the Olympics, which is a four year plan and had very defined parameters. Whereas uh, when you're talking about bodybuilding, there's so many ways to go. And, and even for general sporting events and, and other uh, uses, uh, I think that the term of periodization has somewhat gotten bastardized and, and a lot of people have very, specific uh, ideas as to what it actually uh, means. And uh, in my humble opinion, uh, periodization at this point is really a catch-all phrase. Uh, so it, it's not a, uh, it's, it's an overall model, but it is not a defined uh, way of training. It, we, there's, my way of periodizing would be different than other people's. And uh, I think that's an important context. And then when we start talking about how it's structured, it really is going to depend upon the individual. I have general, um, on a general basis, when it's more of like a block periodization, again, then it depends what, what type of planning you're going to use. I mean, because you can use more of an undulating model. I use uh, that sometimes. I also use modified uh, block type models. Mm -hmm. so, so again, this is really going to depend on anyway, in the block type model, usually a four to six to eight week period for a mesocycle is, uh, but even it could extend to three months. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. But then there, there'll be variations within the, that for, let's say it's a three month period. I would certainly have variations within that. And then there's going to be deloads. So it's again, how, the, how you're structuring, uh, how you're structuring the plan. And then that'll be dependent on the individual and his goals and abilities or her, his or her goals or abilities. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point in that I, people like to, yeah, just jump on the word periodization. And um, there's at this point, I guess, in the, the state of science, there's still so much left up to interpretation um, in that kind of regard, especially in terms of the long scale manipulation of variables. So it's, yeah, it's really hard to necessarily say that this is the one way it has to be done. There's so many different ways you can approach it. And to your point, and I think this is another really important point, um, periodization has not been well studied, at least in the context that we're talking about. And first of all, it's almost impossible to really study periodization as a concept, unless you're studying the Soviet model or, or like a, even some of the undulating models. But the traditional Soviet model, if you're gonna start altering that, there's just so many ways to go. Uh, my, again, are you going to study my periodization model? You're going to study another researchers. So what, how do you actually study periodization? And, and the, I would also say that the research on periodization uh, just has a lot of holes in it. So um, it's very inconclusive uh, and, and it's not set up to study the models well, because really to study periodization, you need to have a fairly long time frame. Uh, to see the bet because periodization isn't designed as a short-term model. It's designed to uh, structure, to plan training across a long period of time. And it doesn't, you don't get the staleness that you would, let's say you do the same routine versus doing a, a planned routine that has uh, certain variations. Uh, you might not, if it's not sufficiently long, you're not gonna see the negative effects conceivably of continuing to do just a non-planned routine. And, and then how will you get the subjects within that? I would also um, argue that for a novice individual, and, and you kind of brought up that we're talking about more advanced individuals, and that really is who uh, a periodized type model, a planned model is gonna be more specific to. Mm -hmm. Because if you're talking a newbie, uh, I would argue that they were better off not doing any period, not doing any planning, that you just should be keeping a focus on doing the same thing over and over so that they get more a, uh, that there is more of an ingraining of the motor patterns achieved. You know, if you're going to start varying, uh, manipulating variables and, and going deloads and doing different things, it's just not going to benefit a, a newbie and in fact, it can hinder their ability because it's giving them other variables to consider when they should be focusing on ingraining these motor patterns. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think as a beginner, it's really, it's, it's key to really focus on finding what works for you in terms of just the basic variables like the exercises that work well for your your body uh the rep ranges and for different muscle groups and the volumes that you need to have a lock on and just learning the movements mm -hmm. when you're just starting out the most important thing is understanding movement patterns it's getting your form down uh you're not looking to get huge in two months or three months so your first few <laughs> months of training depending upon what you're doing particularly with your more complex movements 
your squats, your rows. Uh, anyway, the, the more fr free weight uh, type movements, there it's a learning uh, process. And if you start varying that and, and getting into different rep ranges and anyway, it's just, to, in my opinion, it is not uh, using a periodized model in that uh, population is not uh, the right way to go about it. And thus, if you're going to carry out a research study in untrained subjects, you're setting up the model to fit your the study to fail. You're not comparing it in a way that's properly going to assess whether there is a benefit to it or not. Yeah, that's a good point. And a lot of research is carried out in uh, beginners. So obviously, it's going to be really difficult to be studying this, which is why I have uh, you as a master of the research on uh, to provide your opinions and just what to uh, sort of think about these sorts of more advanced topics. Uh, so yeah, moving on. Um, in terms of a mesocycle, there's been a lot of talk on uh, in the science-based sphere about mesocycle progression. And I just wanted to ask your opinion on it and what in, in your sort of favorite model, um, how do you like to progress variables within a mesocycle? Uh, I, I mean, the, that's again, too open-ended of a question because it depends upon what mesocycle you're talking, a strength mesocycle or a hypertrophy mesocycle. I mean, I, there's different mesocycles I might utilize and they're all relevant to hypertrophy. So a strength, I, I would argue that a strength mesocycle has relevance to a hypertrophy routine because if you can create greater strength, that can translate into greater ability to use heavier loads in your hypertrophy, quote unquote, mesocycle, which would increase the mechanical tension that's utilized within that uh, block or, or that cycle and, and allow you to enhance. So again, it would just be dependent upon what, uh, what the focus was and how it was gonna go about it. I mean, one of the things I will say that I, I like to do in hypertrophy type training is to progress volume wise so to have periods of lower volumes interspersed with periods of higher volumes and generally progress towards a, uh, a block that tries to promote supercompensation, where it really pushes, uh, where, where there's an intensified uh, cycle for a short period of time that's gonna try to kind of push the person towards the lifter, towards the edge of a cliff without going over that cliff, to use a, an analogy. And, and if you can really uh, tax someone's resources without pushing them to an overtrained state, so within a functional overreaching state, um, conceivably and, and based upon my experience, uh, you can optimize results or, or help to enhance results to a greater extent. That's something I will say that needs to be verified in the literature, there's certainly no I'm saying this more from personal experience and uh, we, we don't have any hard research, but there are some we can draw from the research to make certain conclusions towards that fact. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and I think that uh, as you mentioned, it's probably best if we zoom out a little bit first then um, and just back up and say, what are, you, what are the main types of mesocycles that you like to implement? Yeah, well, I, I mean, the primary ones would be, so again, this is in more of a block type periodized uh, um, routine. And, and 
So I use different strategies for different lifters. It would depend upon what their goals are. But I do like to use, particularly for competitive bodybuilders, a, a block type periodization routine, which goes through a, more of a cyclical uh, process. And it, often I'll use the kind of three common ones are a strength cycle, a metabolic cycle, and a hypertrophy cycle. So the strength cycle would be geared towards optimizing obviously strength so that you can increase the amount of load lifted during the uh, hypertrophy phase. Uh, again, they're relatively short blocks. The metabolic cycle would be to enhance the um, uh, lactate threshold, really to raise lactate threshold so you can, within a given hypertrophy type uh, range, if you will, um, be able to grind out a few more reps than you might not because your body is able to um, clear lact lactic acid to a greater extent. And then the hypertrophy cycle. So, uh, but again, these are kind of general terminology uh, that can be utilized and people can call things what they will and, and have other strategies. So one thing that I'm always big on in, in educating people is that there is no one way to go about this. Uh, I have certain things that I've done based upon many years of, of experience as well as understanding the literature. And that's ultimately what a, a true evidence-based practitioner does. They have a good grasp of the literature, an excellent grasp of the literature. And in particular, it's not only what it shows, but the limitations, the gaps, limitations of the research itself and the gaps in the literature. Then they've been in the field in the trenches and they've done it themselves and worked with others preferably so that they have a real understanding. Uh, and then they can have an appreciation for other individuals. And particularly, I think that's where my experience as a personal trainer for many years before I became an educator comes in. And uh, when you have an understanding about how other people respond, uh, that's really important because I think one of the big issues that I see uh, with coaches is that they know, they know what works for them, but they really don't have an understanding of the variation. So they might be a hard gainer and assume that everyone else is a hard, you know, that their experience is um, generalizable to others and it's not necessarily and vice versa. If someone is a, has a physique that uh, is just made for bodybuilding, they can't appreciate these hard gainers and what they may need to go through and, and do to uh, optimize their own genetics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's important to note. And um, yeah, like often when you look at the research and if you actually look at the individual data points within a research study, you like see how much variation there is in terms of the actual responses people have to different and how much just individual variation there is. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And so in terms of broad strokes, if you were just building a sample plan, um, what sort of ratio of these different blocks would you have and in what order? Um, so, I mean, I have a, not, you just asked, so I'm not necessarily trying to plug it, but I have a book called the Max Muscle Plan, which I will plug, we'll have a second edition coming out uh, in September, 2021. Uh, but I, I mean, I kind of outlined the, the template for it, which is a strength phase, an initial strength phase, which is anywhere between four to eight weeks, a metabolic phase, which is generally four weeks, and then a hypertrophy phase, which lasts generally around 10 to 12 weeks. 
so that's again a, a basic template. But those, one of the things I'm big on, not only in discussing like now as we're talking, but also in the books that I write, is making people understand that they are templates, and that as you mentioned before, and as I mentioned, uh, they are made to be customized. So that you have to understand, uh, not everyone falls into these are. are kind of general templates that I've used. And I've, I always modify them when I've worked with other individuals, uh, bodybuilders in particular. And uh, they're the ultimate way that I carry them out is, is different based on the individual. And thus that should be the, uh, the rule for everyone is that uh, we can have guidelines, but they are always malleable. They always need to be you always need to take into account the needs and abilities of the individual and customize them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then more so almost the, the rule is that there is no rule, you know, in, 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 in hypertrophy training. And this is, there's so many different avenues you can take, which is the yep. great strength of the, the sport, I think. And um, while we're on it, while we're talking about uh, resources, if anyone hasn't, Brad also has an amazing book called the science and development of hypertrophy, which, I think is one of the most important, you know, pieces of literature out there right now, currently. And I actually draw a lot from it in my YouTube videos. So if anyone is looking to up their game, check that out as well. And I'll note that is a real textbook. So it's not light reading, it's not bathroom reading. So that, <laughs> that, that gets into the hard science of, uh, of hypertrophy. It does have practical uh, some of the chapters are certainly more practically based, but it's uh, it's made to be a textbook. And uh, if you want to take this, take a stab at it, make sure you're you're up. You have some coffee with you. <laughs> All right. So yeah, now circling around to some of those other juicy topics that uh, you alluded to earlier. Um, what is the relationship between developing strength for hypertrophy, um, and how does strength training impact future hypertrophy? That's a great question. So um, first of all, certainly there is a, re a relationship between hypertrophy and strength. So we want to take it from the other uh, standpoint that if you want to get stronger, uh, particularly as you're becoming more experienced, uh, some level of muscle growth is going to be uh, mandated obligatory. Uh, now it's not certainly not a linear relationship and there's many other factors that go into gaining strength. Uh, now, when we're going, when we're taking it from the other uh, standpoint, what's the relationship between strength to hypertrophy? As I mentioned, um, it's more theoretical uh, in that we know that mechanical tension, so mechanical tension, when you lift a weight, there is tension that is stress that is imposed upon the muscles. The muscles convert the mechanical stress into chemical signals. So it's called mechanotransduction where uh, mechanical forces are, are converted into chemical signals. And that uh, by a very complex process initiates muscle protein synthesis, which, which is ultimately what uh, fosters muscle growth, uh, which is the, in simple terms, it's a greater, you're building more proteins than you're breaking down. That's when muscles grow over time. Um, and that has been shown to have the, uh, to be a, the major factor. I, I think there's very little doubt, um, both intuitively and scientifically that that is the case. 
Thus, at least conceivably, by being able to uh, increase at a given load. So let's say you're training at a 10 RM. If you're, let's say you're doing a bench press at uh, 300 pounds with a 10 RM. And uh, let's say you can increase that to 310 pounds at a 10 RM. You are then creating more mechanical tension at that given uh, RM and conceivably that you are able thus to grow more muscle because you are for, for the given work that you're doing, or for, right, for the given, or for the given repetitions that you're doing, you're carrying out more work. And that uh, in terms of the uh, loading capacity that would seemingly, and, and this is not, that is not something that's been well studied. There was a recent study that came out, which actually uh, does support this to some extent that did show, it wasn't a huge difference, but it did seem to show greater growth when you proceeded a hypertrophy phase with a strength phase. So in short, what the study did would they have either an eight week hypertrophy block or they had a three week strength block followed by a five week hypertrophy block. And it was a fairly slight, but a potentially meaningful difference over that short period of time uh, in hypertrophy uh, for the uh, group that preceded the uh, hypertrophy with the strength phase. Uh, it's one study, it's a piece in a puzzle. So certainly it's, I'm not saying it's in any way conclusive, but it does provide at least, I think, some preliminary evidence that there might be a benefit. And there is a good logical rationale, which for any scientific, if you're gonna look, uh, if you wanna then carry out scientific research, you wanna have a good scientific rationale. And uh, I think there is a, a fairly good scientific rationale why uh, strength, could have uh, beneficial effects. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that that that's really interesting, and I think that um, uh, it's it's definitely a cool sort of topic to think about. Um, if you were looking then and applying this to looking at progression schemes, um, say someone is thinking about different ways of progressing their reps and load uh, across a mesocycle and say like comparing things like linear or reverse type uh, progression. And would you say then that if one type of progression gives you better strength progress, say even if we're in a hypertrophy block and we're using more sort of moderate rep ranges, would that theoretically then lead to better hypertrophy? I'm not clear. So you, anyway, I'm not cloud. I don't want to try to take a stab without uh, knowing exactly what you're saying. So can you repeat the gist of that? Yeah. So I guess um, if we're in a hypertrophy block, maybe not necessarily a strength block, and we're in the sort of moderate rep ranges, um, if you're comparing different progression schemes, should you then basically be um, choosing the progression scheme based on the progress it gives you. In other words, like if, if uh, like, should we just be, um, you know, optimizing for the progression in this, uh, like say our multi-set 10, 10 rep max? Well, all right. So I think I, I grasp what you're saying, but the goal of any um, structured plan would be to peak, you want to uh, put whatever block 
that you're looking to carry out or, or goal that you're looking to carry out as the last block. So if you're looking to do uh, bodybuilding, let's say the hypertrophy phase would be the final block. You'd precede the hypertrophy with the strength block and, and, and potentially metabolic block. But there's so many different ways. Again, that's assuming you're doing in a block type fashion. Uh, you can do uh, certainly an undulating period, periodized program can work very well, uh, depending on goals and, and, and other factors where you're doing a heavy day, a moderate day and a light day. You can, uh, and I've done stuff like this where you have even within a given day, uh, let's say one, you might pick your, oh, your multi-joint movement. Let's say, you, let's say you're doing a leg day where your squats are gonna be in your uh, more power lifting, let's say a five RM zone, your leg press might be in a 10 RM zone and your leg extension might be in a 15 or 20 RM zone. So, so many different ways to go about it. And there's no necessarily right or wrong. There only can be a right or wrong get based on a given individual and their given goals. So uh, I, did I answer your question? I'm yeah, yeah, sorry. That probably came out a little bit unclear. I think, uh, yeah. Basically, the question was, assuming that we're we're taking our progression over, say, the um, six to twelve rep range over multiple sets as our sort of target goal, does it matter how you get there? Yeah, and if you're talking, let's say a six a block where you're going to do six to twelve RM, uh, no. So anything within that range kind of would be considered more. Know, hypertrophy type training, quote unquote, which is, I don't know if we want to go down the rabbit hole, but that's somewhat of a misnomer anyway. But uh, I mean, I like to use a, uh, what's called a step loading um, uh, approach in, in that type of, uh, when you're using that uh, type of loading design uh, paradigm, where you do, let's say, uh, first week might be 10 to 12 RM, then eight to 10 RM, and then six to eight RM. Or you could do it vice versa. It's really not uh, how you'd want to go about it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that trying to train within those, it's not that that's the be all end all, but that is a way to kind of target more of the upper range of the uh, hypertrophy zone, if you will, and the lower range. By the way, I, I'll say this too. Uh, we've carried out, I've collaborated on studies that have carried out um, pyramid type uh, designs where we looked at 10, uh, with, so this was even within a given exercise, where we looked at 15, 10, 5, so 15 RM, 10 RM, 5 RM, versus just doing an 8, eight to 10 RM, mm -hmm. actually did show some beneficial effects of training with a, a greater loading zone in the, uh, you know, a wider loading zone within the uh, um, repetition zone. Yeah, awesome. No, that's great to hear because it, it, it aligns with my personal experience, I guess, and that um, I feel that, well, for hypertrophy, having a broad range of uh, rep ranges and exploring that uh, space is beneficial. Um, and yeah, so moving on um, in terms of uh, metabolite blocks, how do you like to implement those and sort of your reasoning? Yeah, so the metabolic uh, metabolic phase would be primarily focused towards uh, increasing, as I mentioned before, the lactate threshold. Uh, so it's kind of lactate threshold based training. 
and, and also I, I will say a potential side benefit is that the higher rep ranges that would be used and, and shorter reps. So that again, you're gonna increase metabolite accumulation. That's mm -hmm. the goal. Um, there may be benefits to the type one fiber hypertrophy. That's still, I would say quite equivocal. Um, there's some evidence towards it at one of our recent studies kind of threw some cold water on that to my dismay because I had uh, it's something that I, I still, uh, I, I mean, again, one study is one study, but I, I'm not saying that uh, I, I'm, it, it did somewhat sober my uh, expectations on it, but it, it's a possibility, but I do think there's a benefit at least towards enhancing the lactate threshold using that. And again, when you're training in a moderate rep range, let's say you're eight to 12 RM, uh, a peripheral um, metabolite accumulation is gonna be a potential source of fatigue uh, during the, uh, that, uh, that type of training. So if you can increase your body's ability to clear lactic acid, you'll again be able to grind out another rep, two reps, three reps. And we talked about mechanical tension that again would be allowing greater mechanical tension for that given set. You're using, there's more load being imposed within a given uh, set and thus that potentially en enhances your ability to increase growth. So uh, these are conceptual uh, but again, based on, uh, I think, solid, uh, solid logical rationale. And remember that I know people like to think of research as this guiding beam that is going <laughs> to give them the, you know, kind of the holy grail of answers. And it's really just providing guidelines and that there's so many gaps in the literature, um, Absence of evidence is not, this is a popular research phrase, but an absence of evidence does not indicate evidence of absence. Doesn't mean that it, it does occur, but certainly if there's no evidence for it, you then need to defer to using good logical rationale and, and using the uh, trying to imply from research what, what research has shown, uh, particularly basic research and other, um, other forms of research that you might be able to guide you along with your own personal expertise. So I know uh, in a lot of researchers will dismiss uh, things that bodybuilders do, et cetera. They are big for a reason. Now it doesn't mean they're right about a lot of things. They, they also can be wrong. So basically it's, it's a matter of both. Those who, who shun science, who issue the uh, scientific aspect are missing out on, on a really a, a very good way to um, optimize their own results and vice versa. Those who just think that they're, uh, especially some researchers, uh, which is really a shame because they should be more, they have the education, so they should know better. But I do see that a lot where uh, researchers will thumb their nose at uh, what people have done in the field. And uh, really they're synergistic and we need to have an understanding uh, you're not going to be able to create routines from research. You're going to be able to enhance what you can do based on using research, but research will never tell, it will never tell you what to do. And certainly it will never tell an individual what to do as we talked before, because there's just so many uh, such individual variants. Not only do we, are there gaps in the literature in terms of what we know, in terms of our ability to infer uh, um, draw conclusions 
for conclusions from the research, but also just the uh, individual variance to different variables is very large. When I carry out a study, we see some people on a given variable that's manipulated, whether it be volume or load or rest intervals, whatever. I mean, one, one individual is gaining 20% muscle, has a 20% increase in muscle growth, and another one has zero. And uh, you know, there could be other confounding issues, diet, stress, and other things as well. But it, it certainly does give you uh, insights that people don't respond the same way to the same variables. And, and that's well documented in the literature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's no guiding beam in research, guys. Man, Brad, I was hoping you were going to beam me up. Where's the spaceship? <laughs> so, yeah, moving on. Um, I want to circle back and you mentioned uh, supercompensation or um, and that kind of concept and wanted to dig into that a little bit more. Um, what is that concept and how do you like to apply it? In what context? Yeah, I guess in, in terms of uh, setting up uh, mesocycles. Well, so supercompensation uh, super is when you um, basically you have an additive effect from what you're doing. Your uh, we comp compensation is where you're going to see, let's say, gain supercompensation. It's kind of a somewhat of a buzzword as well. Is where you get greatly enhance the effect or or, or over enhance the effect, if you will. Um, that needs to be taken done very delicately because. Uh, if you, so supercompensation is going to require that you are uh, training at a level that is really overtaxing you. It's mm -hmm. pushing you towards a uh, an overreach state, but it's a functionally overreach state where you're going to be doing more than you think you can handle, if you will, or mm -hmm. uh, where you're really pushing your body hard. And again, I liked, I think an analogy is, appropriate here where someone goes to the edge of a cliff without going over the cliff. If you go over the cliff, that would be an overtrained or a non-functionally overreach state. But if you just go to the edge, let's say, and let's say you're looking to get a, you're on a mountaintop and you want to get a view of what's below you. Uh, you want to go right to the edge, you're going to get the best view of what's below. That's, that can be your super compensation, if you will. If you go over that, you're, you're toast. So uh, the idea would be to supercompensate to get to the edge without going too far. And let's say, again, it requires a lot of um, expertise. Uh, you always, to me, want to earn the side of caution because again, if you're at the top of that mountain, you're better off stopping a few inches away than going a little too far. And similarly, if you're overtrained, then it's going to have negative effects where there's uh, really detrimental a detrimental impact on your not only performance and your your growth but also on your health so there's increased risk of illness uh, and injury in that uh, in that state so uh, they're generally very short blocks usually two to three weeks or so occasionally four would depend on the individual and how they're progressing and just many factors uh, and when I'm in doubt, I try to err on the side of caution and do, uh, let's say, someone who's uh, I, I've never worked with before, and certainly ones who are less well trained, 
want to go uh, towards the shorter end of that. And then you're going to manipulate it. Usually that's going to be uh, higher volumes or if the hypertrophy is the goal, where you're going to have a block where volumes are higher, um, particularly for uh, muscle groups that are lagging muscles. So the focus would be on bringing up the lagging muscles there where you're going to really push volume for those lagging muscles. And usually that also will involve an increased frequency of training uh, because you want to spread out the volume over more frequent sessions. If you're going to pack a lot of volume into a single session, uh, the session's going to be really long and, and ultimately it's uh, the individual is not going to, whatever they're doing towards the end of that session will not be optimized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I think it's important, yeah, as you mentioned, to stress that uh, this is kind of a fine line and you want to be careful um, when you're trying to, when you're trying to purposely overreach. Um, in terms of, I guess, someone who might be trying to navigate this on their own and trying to figure out their own programming, how would they go about knowing that they're um, overreaching to the right amount and, you know, that they're getting actually getting a benefit from this kind of training? Yeah, so um, that is the, you know, $5 million question. And um, it, it really involves a lot of uh, self-reflection. So you need to constantly, you need to be in tune with your body. Uh, and generally, again, what, what I, as I mentioned earlier, I say err on the side of caution. Usually if you're gonna do a very short block, you're gonna be safe. And what I would say is, ease into it over time where the first time you try it out, stick with a very short block, let's say two weeks, and uh, then see how you respond, then do another cycle. And then maybe if, if you were fine, maybe you felt you could have gone more, go to three weeks. Now, again, you, you, can, you can play around with it and say, see how you're feeling. If you're starting to feel fatigued, uh, pull back. One of the problems, though, is that some of the markers, I mean, one of the big ones is uh, performance decrements that you see. If you already seen the performance decrement, generally that means you are in an overtrained state and, and you've already done some of the detrimental effects on your body that you don't want to see. So, uh, I, I mean, there are symptoms of overtraining. Uh, lethargy, fatigue would be some of the early ones somewhat of a demotivated state. Uh, if you're coming into the gym and it's like, oh no, I got to do this again. When usually you're very, if that's the way you always saw it, then there's <laughs> an issue with your, your training philosophy. <laughs> but, uh, but if you're usually very jacked to be in the gym and it's like, oh God, I mean, that could be an a indication that you've overdone it. And, and again, you, you to me, I know people have differing opinions on this, but my general view is you don't want to use performance as a gauge. There are people that think you, you can and should. Uh, I disagree with that because I think that that, uh, once you are at that state where performance, uh, you see a decrement in performance, you are in a, a state that has compromised your, uh, your overreaching, that you are either non-functionally overreached or you're overtrained. And they kind of, the line is kind of blurred between the two. Yeah, no, I think I, I agree with that. I think that uh, by the time you see decrements in performance is often a fairly late sign. Mm. And often, especially for bodybuilders who have this all out mentality, 
it, it, it can be hard sometimes even just monitoring yourself to, to, to really put the brakes on things from, a, from that kind of uh, self-regulated standpoint. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point too, is that usually, particularly competitive, competitive athletes in general, but competitive bodybuilders, it's the all or none mentality. And, uh, you know, they, they don't want to deload. They don't, basically it's, uh, they're just so focused on losing their gains if they back off a little or don't do something. And that's not the way it works. Uh, that uh, managing fatigue is just a really important aspect of making proper gains over time. It is, it is not a sprint. It is really a marathon to gaining muscle. You don't gain, you don't maximize muscle in, in two months, you know, or in one month. It happens over a very long process over time. Uh, and you got to, to stay in the game and to, to optimize and maximize your own genetic, genetic potential. Uh, you need to take this longer term approach and that involves interspersing deload periods, uh, getting to know your body, not being afraid to have periods of less volume lower volumes, I, I think those are very important to, like I said, the super compensatory uh, phases are meant to be short-term or functional overreaching phases, and they should not be confused. Some people want to functionally overreach for six months, and that's what <laughs> The body is very resilient, so it can recover uh, and thrive when, when a very stressful event is imposed upon them over short periods of time. But if you continue to impose stressors, very high levels of stress over longer periods, people break down. I mean, that's just a, a very well-documented phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely uh, something you wanna be uh, mindful of and be, be uh, really thinking about your fatigue management and uh, 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 steering away from having these chronic injuries crop up as well, which would really set you back more overall in the long term. Yeah. Um, moving uh, on a related note, I guess, I know you highlighted some recent research on uh, the maintenance of uh, strength and muscle gains. And, and I think it's important to stress that it really isn't that hard to maintain your muscle. And when people are afraid of losing things, if they back off even just a, you know, a couple sets in a workout, is there an application of using maintenance phases themselves in um, hypertrophy programming? Well, not unless you just don't want to make any more gains. There's certainly, now if, if you want to talk about a deload period, which is a short one week, usually a week or so, could be a week's just an arbitrary number anyway, but somewhere between, you know, five days, seven days, whatever you want to do. So you have a short period where you're going to have substantially reduced uh, volume, intensity, uh, intensity of effort and, and load. Uh, that would be something that would be applicable if your goal is to maximize your growth. If you're say, you know what, I'm, um, I have just a lot going on and I want to maintain that, that would be a reason you'd want to have a maintenance phase, but there wouldn't be a, a reason why you'd, to me, why you'd want to have a maintenance phase if your goal is to maximize your growth. You'd want to go straight from a deload back into a, uh, a gaining type period. Yeah, I guess one thing that people have talked about is, uh, I guess, the concept of resensitization. Um, I, I, I don't think that, so yeah, the resensitization though is, um, 
I don't think it's going to uh, maximize growth beyond you. There is a resensitization. And th that actually is a, an interesting phenomenon that's been shown. But I think that you can get that again more from uh, having periods of lower uh, volume, intensity, et cetera, where, where, where you have more of an overreaching phase. I think that's where that type of strategy comes in to structure your training uh, over time so that you're going harder and harder. I don't think the maintenance phase necessarily makes sense from a resensitization standpoint where you're going to grow more. I think you can catch up your gains very quickly if you have that maintenance phase. But um, again, I, I, to me, and, and it's not something that's been well researched, but uh, there has been studies that have shown you get your gains back quickly. Uh, not that if you continued to train over time, you'd have more gains. Now, if that, if that research does come out, that would be really interesting. I'm skeptical of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. And I, uh, that's basically my stance on the topic as well, I think, um, where I know there, it has been shown that people basically arrived at the same point at the end when they took more breaks, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you went further or that it will give you more progress or gains than from just training hard all the time. And you have to look at the um, subjects. So those were, again, an untrained subjects. Uh, pretty hard, by the way. Try carrying out that study in, in well-trained uh, individuals. <laughs> home. They're going to they're gonna take What's a two or, two or three month break of training. Uh, good luck with actually getting someone, you know, enough subjects to do that. Uh, but again, I would think in a well-trained subject, and even the uh, paper that I posted, it was a review paper, uh, there's not been enough research in high-level bodybuilders, certainly, or, or even just well-trained individuals and athletes to draw conclusions that a very low uh, volume uh, approach is sufficient to maintain volume and uh, frequency approach is sufficient to attain, maintain uh, gains for longer periods of time. I have no doubt that over short periods, several weeks, not going to be a big issue. But if we're talking uh, that particular paper talked about over six months. It was, I think, 32 weeks was one of the longest uh, studies. And uh, that literally with doing one session per week, one set uh, showed maintenance benefits. But again, in an untrained population and uh, how this all plays out, that's uh, studies that are need to be carried out. And I think it's an interesting area of research and there's been some cool molecular work done by some colleagues of mine that are just terrific researchers. Uh, but I think that uh, that is more speculative, that is more hypothesis generating. And I think there's some holes in the speculation that some people have taken with that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely uh, interesting things to, to, to think about, I guess. Um, in terms of the more cellular level, there's quite a bit of talk earlier about uh, satellite cells. Um, what is your uh, opinion on the role of satellite cells in muscle growth now and any techniques that people might use for them? Yeah, so satellite cells, for those who don't know, are um, basically they're muscle stem cells. Most people would know what a stem cell is. They use that in research all the time. 
but it's a non-specialized cell that has the ability to become more specialized. In uh, terms of satellite cells, their muscle, uh, they become more specialized in terms of the muscle. And basically they do, they perform functions uh, as to what the muscle needs. One of the most important things that satellite cells do, and, and by the way, satellite cells reside just above the uh, sarcolemma, the muscle membrane, and they are quiescent. They, they are um, quiet, if you will. So they don't do anything until they're woken up through either two things that wake them up are uh, mechanical tension and muscle damage, are the two primary factors. And um, when they are awoken, if you will, to use a, somewhat of a, a common term, uh, they, one of the big things they do is they donate their nuclei to uh, a muscle. Now, muscle cells are uh, multinucleated, meaning that they have more than one nuclei. And the nuclei are where transcription takes place. And again, without getting into a whole scientific discussion here, uh, that is a primary uh, point of protein synthesis. So uh, transcription goes to translation and that carries out your protein synthetic response. So basically the nuclear often called the brains of the cell, if you will. And uh, they're going to initiate the, uh, this tran uh, transcription process. If you are limited, so think about uh, your nuclei as power plants. You have a certain number, you're born with a certain number of nuclei in the muscle. And as you mature, you'll have a certain number of nuclei. If you think of these as power plants that produce proteins, you can produce a certain amount of proteins with the nuclei that you have. If your muscle is producing, if it's ramped up at maximum production capacity, just like a car factory, a car plant, or a widget plant, whatever you want to use, <laughs> um, you're tapped out at, at a certain point. You can't produce. If you have, let's say, let's say your General Motors and you're looking to produce, uh, you have the production capacity for 50,000 cars, and you have 50,000 orders, well, you're tapped out. If you then get 10,000 more orders, what do you do? You can't meet that. The only way you can meet those additional orders is by adding on more plants. Mm. Well, that's really, in effect, what satellite cells do is they donate the nuclei to the, uh, to the muscle cell. And the muscle then has the ability to create more proteins and thus to build more muscle. The proteins are what, muscle proteins are what build the muscle. So having uh, more and more, not only more satellite cells, but your satellite cells have greater uh, ability to proliferate, meaning to uh, multiply and then differentiate, become more specialized. Um, ultimately, that's what's going to spur muscle growth. Now, in the, if you're in a beginning stage of training, it's not a big deal because you have sufficient amount of, uh, of nuclei to meet the demands of your growth. It's when you reach a certain uh, level of growth, at least again, theoretically, uh, when you reach a certain level of growth, that's when uh, you really need more satellite cells to continue to grow. Hmm. So it's kind of where you're tapped out for growth. If you want to keep growing, you're going to need to add more nuclei through, and that's going to be achieved through satellite cells to continue growing. Uh, how do you go about that? You got to train hard over time. So uh, impose a progressive uh, overload. And overload does not just mean load, it's 
Some people think the word load means you got to use heavier loads. There's many ways to uh, progressively, basically overload should be thought of as challenging the muscle. You can increase frequency, you can increase volume, you can decrease rest intervals. There's multiple ways to potentially go about that. And potentially you might uh, in, incur more muscle damage and that might be achieved through greater variety of training through eccentric overload training. We use um, super maximal eccentric loading. Now that is somewhat of a controversial topic. Uh, does that provide an additive stimulus? It's still not clear, but um, hypothetically uh, getting some damage may help to uh, enhance that effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's, that was a really good uh, overview of the, of, of the very complicated topic. And I think that the viewers will appreciate, I really appreciate how, you know, you're so in tune with the science, but yet you're still able to translate everything into something that everyone can understand. And I think it speaks to your, you know, background and uh, having a very wide experience with, with well, sport. I do want to say, I think it's uh, an important point that uh, I get asked by a lot of uh, up and coming researchers, you know, how can I, uh, I, I admire your career? What, what kind of advice would you give? The one thing I always say, if you want to go into applied exercise science, before you do your PhD, spend at least a few years being personal trainer, strength coach. Uh, if your goals are strength hypertrophy, if your research goals are strength hypertrophy, uh, or, or ultimately whatever they are. I, I mean, if you want to do practical research, uh, be a practitioner and uh, it'll give you an understanding not only of what needs to be studied, but also of how people respond individually, uh, what needs to be done. And I, I attribute a lot of my uh, notability, if you will, in the field or the popularity of my research to the fact that I spent close to 18 years as a personal trainer before I uh, went into uh, before I got my PhD and then went into research. So uh, it really gave me perspective on what I thought needed to be done in the field and, and where I saw a lot of gaps in the literature in terms of what was being done, particularly with hypertrophy training. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, I think that uh, a lot of, uh, yeah, science-minded people will kind of uh, thumb their noses at, it, at the, uh, you know, old school bodybuilders, but I think it's kind of almost two sides of the same coin where you, you, you can't necessarily discount what they've, uh, what the success they've had through those, whatever they've done. And sometimes, sometimes things that they have done end up being, um, you know, actually validated in the literature later on, which has been really interesting to see over the last few years, especially with research that uh, uh, you've been involved with. Um, yeah, and swinging back to that, uh, um, the muscle damage point, when people are implementing, you know, these types of more muscle damaging techniques, would you have any sort of uh, organization, like specifically in, in your training, like, would you try and um, stack them more towards the end of a block or in a certain block? Uh, no, what, what I would say, though, is that when we talk about muscle damage, uh, we're talking really about more moderate levels of damage. You certainly should not be walking out of the gym where you're having difficulty walking <laughs> uh, or, or uh, making your arms so sore that you can't wash your shampoo, your hair. Uh, too much muscle damage is certainly a negative 
specifically because it's going to impair your training ability. Um, whether, you know, increasing some satellite sunk capacity at the expense of being able to train is a poor trade-off. So uh, if there is a benefit to uh, muscle damage from a hypertrophy standpoint, it should be where the uh, muscle damage is moderate and thus it should not be impairing your ability to train for your, for your next session. And thus there's, in my opinion at least, uh, I, I, don't see a, um, I don't see a role for trying to periodize that, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I think that, yeah, especially as become, people become more advanced, fatigue becomes a, a, a really important player in the equation. And uh, these damaging techniques, um, people sometimes fail to realize that they cost you a lot of uh, productive volume on the, on the grand scale if you, if you just take in your overall weeks or overall blocks volume. Um, you, you might end up in the negative if you focus too much on just smashing the muscle. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's what I would say is, is that it's, it's quite easy to uh, just get good results. It is extremely difficult to maximize your, your genetic potential. So if I, we could do a five-minute interview and I could uh, just give the basics of training for muscle size and, you know, for your average gym goer who's just looking to, you know, add on some muscle, it's very easy. You don't need to do virtually everything we've talked about would just be esoteric, it just wouldn't have much value. But for those who want to really take their game to the next level, that's where the chess game comes in. And that's where it becomes a real, um, it requires a real high level of understanding and of experimentation. So getting 80% of your gain, 75, 80, it's always hard to put an exact number on it, but somewhere in that range where you're you're getting close to your genetic potential, let's say, let's say 75%. It's that extra 25, 20, 25% where uh, you really need to start. Uh, and when I say start, you really need to put your thinking cap on and, and have a well-structured plan that uh, that's well, not only well thought out, but that is constantly reanalyzed where you're trying to understand how your body responds and what you're going to do based on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think having that mindset of, uh, yeah, lifelong experimentation and self-learning, I think is going to be absolutely key for any bodybuilder who wants to stay in the sport and really maximize their potential. Uh, looping back actually on the same vein, I guess, uh, in terms of, um, implementing these types of training in terms of the metabolite training um people some people say that uh your your body will become resistant to metabolite training over over time what are your thoughts on that and i guess the i don't know what you mean by resistant what does that mean yeah i guess people um will say that your body will get increasingly better at i guess clearing metabolites that's the whole idea <laughs> So the whole okay. idea is to get your body better at clearing metabolism. Okay. You're doing it again. It's, it's, it's not for the You're not training for long periods of time, just for the sake of metabolite training. You're training for a short block to enhance your ability to clear metabolites. And uh, if you're saying, is your body going to then hit a point where it's not going to, your lactate threshold won't get, uh, won't rise anymore. Yeah, potentially it will, but 
you're going to be stopping well short of, or you should, we're well short of where that uh, happens uh, in that respect. It's a means to an end, not, you're not doing it for the sake of training from building up metabolites, you're doing okay. it for the sake of enhancing. So again, the, this is what you asked before. Now, if your goal is specifically muscle endurance, there could be reasons why you'd want to have an extended block, more extended block. But I would also argue that there's benefits to structuring in more uh, strength type training as well, even for endurance-based training, muscle endurance-based training. Uh, so again, these are topics that require nu nuance. And uh, if you're looking again at hypertrophy, which was what I was assuming where you were go going with that, uh, they, the goal is to potentiate your hypertrophy blocks. So the strength, uh, you're not training to be a power lifter with your strength block, just, are you going to hit, it's also saying, are you going to get resistant to a strength block? I mean, conceivably, yeah, you're going to hit a point where you don't gain anymore, but that's why you don't just keep doing that. You, you have other, you're structuring other uh, factors into play. That's where your planning is going to be involved. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, really intelligent where I guess the uh, angle people take is that they they're trying to target that uh, metabolic uh, pathway of towards hypertrophy, which I think um, as you, as you were mentioning, it's the main, the main uh, mechanism we're going for is mechanical tension. And that one is probably is much, is much more uh, important in the whole, in the game. So using yeah, I, I was going to say, I don't want to, uh, this would be a topic for another day, but when you train in a moderate rep range, you're also, there's substantial metabolite buildup. So yeah, if you're training in a one to five powerlifting range, you're not going to be uh, increasing metabolites, but if you're doing eight to 12 uh, or so RMs, you're, you're going to, uh, you're training in a glycolytic capacity and you're going to be building up a substantial amount of uh, metabolic stress. So it's not like, it's not an either or where you have to train really high reps. So the question then becomes, it, first of all, is there a benefit, hyper, hypertrophic benefit to metabolic stress per se? We're still not sure. There are certainly some logical rationales to it, um, but uh, I can't say one way or another with good degrees of confidence. I could say there's a possibility and that without knowing otherwise, I think it probably makes sense to uh, have metabolic, I don't, I don't even want to say metabolic type training, but having that uh, training where your metabolites are being built up is a benefit. But again, that can be accomplished in eight to 12 reps. Is there a benefit to having a higher metabolite accumulation? So do you need to go to 20, 30 RM? Will that have an additive effect? That's, that's even a separate question as to whether is metabolic stress a factor? Then is there a dose response to it? Would be the next question and that's even less clear so whether uh I, I could say that there seemingly is a benefit to metabolic stress whether you need to then go to a metabolic style training where you're doing 20 rm uh to maximize that effect uh, again that's uh, that's not been studied and there's no way to uh, to make a it, to have any degree of confidence in drawing a strong conclusion on that. Yeah, I think that's important to to note that like the limitations of the evidence we have uh, with these kinds of nuanced topics. Keeping mind of the time here, I think uh, we're going to be drawing to a close. 
Um, just fun question, Brad. Uh, what kind of research are you most excited for coming up? Uh, I have a lot of projects in the uh, yeah, I'm sure in the till right now. But um, are you saying what would I like to do, or uh, or what are you most excited that's happening right now? Um, we have some really cool studies on uh, on site specific regional hypertrophy, which I think are going to be really intriguing, uh, involving different uh, training styles and their effects on regional hypertrophy, particularly of the quadriceps. We, we have one actually that looked at the biceps as well. Uh, so there's some just interesting uh, research on um, why multiple sites looking at the uh, hypertrophy over multiple sites is important. And I, I think that'll open some eyes. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah, it's always exciting to uh, hear, hear uh, keep our ears to the ground and hear what's coming down the pipeline. So yeah, this has been a really enlightening discussion, Brad, and I appreciate uh, all the uh, insight you've shared as well as the um, just the wisdom, I think, overall for science-based practitioners that I think will they'll really benefit from. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, Google me. It's, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm a, my main social media outlets are uh, Instagram, uh, where I do more consumer uh, educating, uh, and then Twitter, where I do more research-based educating. So they, they're kind of complementary. I'm, I'm on Facebook. I don't do much on Facebook anymore because of their shitty algorithms. I've <laughs> 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 made it a... a my opinion, just a poor communicative for, from an educational standpoint. I, what I do is more just to help educate the public. Uh, so look, look for me on social media or Google me and you'll come up with a lot of uh, info. Mm -hmm. Great. So I want to thank you again, Brad, for coming on the show and really appreciate uh, the discussion we had. My pleasure. That's all for now, guys. Thanks for listening. I am available on a very limited basis for one-on-one -on -one coaching. I'm not cheap, but if you are really serious about taking your physique to the next level, DM me the word coaching on Instagram. For more science-based bodybuilding content, look up Dr. Swole on YouTube, and we'll see you next time.